Hey, science fans. One thing we don't get to talk about enough on this show is environmental concerns, ecology, resources, that sort of thing. I wish we we had more on, on this topic on the show. Fortunately, I found a new podcast that I believe you guys will enjoy called Waterline. Waterline podcast is everything related to water, how to make sustainable irrigation, can water bring peace, how do you uh, keep water clean and and safe and how much money does does our current water system cost in the US what changes can we make and how we use water i just listened to a fantastic episode called water in peace hydropolitics it was all about um, the many different conflicts over different regions of water we've drawn all of these arbitrary lines for our kind of political regions and one thing that we didn't really factor in when doing that was water sources so now there's all of these uncomfortable to say the least conflicts uh, where all of these areas overlap over water sources fantastic episode the waterline podcast is an initiative of israel new tech a part of the israeli ministry of economy and industry so check it out for everything you need to know about the economics political social behavioral technological and environmental aspects of water search for waterline podcast on itunes or in your android podcast app are we yes where are we here why are we here not entirely clear are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all it's immensely bizarre oh oh all right thank wow guys i am overwhelmed i really am wow this Sold out theater in Palm Harbor, Florida. <laughs> I always, for the listeners, this is actually, this is a very nice crowd. I'm happy with the turnout, but I always tell people just to, because half the people here, uh, how many, just so everyone knows, cheer if you've never listened to the Here We Are podcast, so you have no idea what's about to happen. <laughs> that's, a lot of, that's a lot of new fans we're making. So I tell them to go crazy after they hear hear the weird theme song that they don't understand because they don't know the context of the podcast, and they did. Um, today, so uh, let me introduce myself. My, my name's Shane Moss. I'm a stand-up comedian. I've been a comic for 13 years, and a few years ago, I started this podcast. Here we are. I, got, um, I, I made some uh, friends in academia, and I, I got interested in... Um, psychology and neuroscience and all these various things. I had these amazing conversations with uh, these various professors, and I was like, I should record that. People would love to hear that conversation. So that's what I started doing uh, about two and a half years uh, ago, and, and we went into season three last Thanksgiving, and we now have about 50,000 listeners. I'm super proud of this podcast, and, and uh, uh, people seem to like it. And... Um, and I think you guys are going to enjoy it today. This is the fifth ever live one. We've done about 100 plus regular ones, and we just started doing them live. And so this is especially exciting for me. Usually it's like a science podcast, first and foremost. But in the live ones, I get to ham it up a little bit more. So, um, so that's fun. Um, today's theme 
Uh, I decided on, on Valentine's Day just because it's February 16th, and um, I thought that would be a good gimmick to get people out, to be frankly <laughs> honest with you. Um, and it's also, I, I originally got into um, uh, doing this podcast through reaching out to people that studied mating and, and um, a lot of evolutionary psychology and why we, why we choose the people that we do. And that, it was one of the big topics that I was interested on early on. I have a special on Netflix called Mating Season. So it's something that fascinates me. Uh, I think that um, sex and mating and human behavior in general is just bizarre and fascinating and wonderful. And, um, and so I'm very excited for this episode. Joining us today, I have two professors from USF um, who study gender, Jennifer Boston and Joe Pandello. Oh, I screwed it. Welcome. I can't. Joe, what's your name? Vandalo, Joe Vandalo, everybody. I'm the worst. If, if, if you guys listen to the Here We Are podcast, you would know how bad I am uh, with names. And, and it's Boston, right? Woo! Nailed it. Um, uh, Jennifer was only the, the, the guest that I cared about the most anyway. So favorite. Joe's just out of luck. Are we... Um, are we good with sound? I'm hearing a little feedback back there. All right, good. Um, so just to give you guys uh, just a little teaser on kind of what we're going to be talking about today, because originally when I, when I started advertising this show, I, I didn't know what it was going to be about. I was originally just titled it, gave it a generic title, Mating, Dating, and Masturbating, which some people <laughs> saw. Um, that was meant to be deleted from my website. <laughs> Because that's actually not exactly what we're going to be talking about. Um, don't worry. I mean, I can talk. I, I can talk about masturbating if we if we need to. Um, but but I actually found some researchers doing some really really uh, these two professors doing some amazing interesting work on gender that I thought was absolutely fascinating, and uh, I thought would be even more compelling um, than talking about jerking off. But uh, Joe, uh, um, Joe and Jennifer, um, could, could you just, this is one of uh, my, the most amusing studies that I've heard about in, uh, in a little while, and I hear lots of them all the time, and I've told so many friends about this study, and so just to kind of give you guys a little idea of the sort of things that we're going to be covering, can you talk a little bit about the braiding study that you guys ran? Take yeah. it away. I'll take it away. So um, this was actually a method that uh, a graduate student named Jennifer pruitt Frolino and I came up with, so I wanted to give credit to her. But um, So we were interested in how men react to threats to their gender status, so how men respond to performing behaviors that are stereotypically feminine. And so we came up with this um, braiding task where we put a mannequin's head on a, on a wooden frame and affixed a long blonde wig to it and um, wrote up instructions for how to braid her hair and gave men a little basket, a pink basket full of pink hair bands and a pink comb. And, and so in, in the other condition, to control for the gender, the femininity of the task, we had a rope braiding task where we affixed 
three heavy pieces of rope to a wooden frame, and we gave men instructions for how to triple reinforce the strength of some rope. <laughs> so in both conditions, men were doing the exact same braiding activity with their hands. They were braiding something, but it was the framing of the activity as either feminine or more gender neutral that um, influenced how men reacted to the task. And in the braiding task, they reported a lot more discomfort and anxiety and self-consciousness, and they hated it. So, <laughs> what was the what was the thing that you did with um with the punching? Oh, oh, okay. So yeah, so so this is a method that you can use in many different ways, and um, we've replicated this study many times, but look, um, looking at different um, responses to the task. So in one study, we after men did either braiding or rope reinforcing, we gave them an opportunity to hit a punching pad that we purchased from this. Um, What's that sport? It's a science store. No, it is um, kick, kickboxing. We bought it from a kickboxing oh, yeah. website where you can um, purchase these pads that will measure the impact, the, the pounds per square inch of impacts to the pad. So after men either braided hair or rope, we gave them an opportunity to put on some punching gloves or boxing gloves, whatever they're called. I'm a scientist, not a sports person. And then, um, and then they punched the pad, and after braiding hair, they punched the pad with more intensity than they did after braiding rope. So again, after, after having their gender status threatened, men tried to compensate by kind of exhibiting more physical <laughs> strength. So That's why I wore a woman's underwear tonight, so I'd really <laughs> man it up on stage for you guys. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's... That's a, what, do you think that could be a way of like, um, so my regular listeners know my main activity, like the reason why I can't be really threatened, uh, my masculinity can't be threatened is because I am such a man. Um, and like one of my main activities, for example, is chopping wood. I pretty much just chop wood day in and day out. And do, do, you, th do you think if I were to like paint my nails ahead of time, it would make me chop wood? faster if I made myself uncomfortable? <laughs> is, that why, is that why football players wear tights, is what I'm wondering? Well, I think if you have enough masculine credit, which you probably already have, then that kind of act probably doesn't threaten you at all, right? Uh, I have no so I masculine you, credit. See, I, was, I, I was lying about all of that. I don't know that. if you can boost your masculinity anymore, <laughs> is what I'm suggesting. It's only so high I can go. Yeah. Um, so, so, these are the... So, basically... The reason why I picked these guys for a Valentine's Day themed show is because to me, Valentine's Day is about neutering men and, <laughs> and emasculating them, which is not the most romantic way to put it. And, um, and I thought that uh, um, getting two people that actually study and do all of these fun tasks and how to emasculate men would be a lot of fun. For all of us, um, especially the ladies in here, but hopefully the guys will laugh at themselves as well. How did you guys get into studying um, kind of gender roles in 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 general, and and how did you start? Because you originally did a lot of relationship stuff, right, Jennifer? Yes, I did. Um, so, how did I get into it? That's a good question. I I, I asked you. Are you going to ask me any questions? I can't answer. Um, I didn't no. know you didn't know about your life. <laughs> your actual. I have a very bad. Do you know memory. what happened in your life? I didn't know that was going to be a really. stumper. Um, okay, so I think. Okay, 
So I was primarily interested in gender in terms of um, the commonly observed phenomenon whereby men are less willing to violate gender role norms than women are. So the male gender role is more rigid. Um, women have more flexibility. There are fewer social repercussions for women who violate gender role norms. And in fact, women are often um, um, lauded or you know praised for behaving in a, a gender um, non-normative manner because status, social status, um, is you know, is a good thing. So um, and so, I think I, my interest in gender was primarily about people's willingness to violate norms associated with powerful social roles. And then I can't answer Joe's for Joe. So Joe, I can answer that. Um, so in graduate school, I was interested in the concept of honor. So um, kind of cultural differences in honor. And I've, I've been interested in how um, particularly men in cultures of honor um, think about the concept of honor. And then I've connected that to violence and aggression. So from there, um, I started thinking about kind of masculinity and manhood more generally. Um, and the idea that kind of masculinity or manhood is something that has to be, uh, it's a social concept that kind of has to be purchased and, and can be lost. And it was about that time when I started kind of transitioning from kind of a, a narrow focus on the concept of male honor and its connections to violence that uh, Jennifer came to the university where I work and we started collaborating pretty much the day you got there. Um, yeah. So we, you know, we both had kind of an interest in um, gender roles and kind of um, the, the price you pay for stepping out of gender roles. And so that, I think that started our collaboration we were, on, on manhood. We were coming at that question from slightly different perspectives, but then we just, yeah, we just immediately like saw this common interest and yeah, started working together. So, so when you say, so when you say that you're, you're referring to um, can you kind of talk a little bit about how how for men, like becoming a man is more of like a earned thing, a rite of passage, where maybe it's not the same for females. Um, that, that's much of your work, right? Yeah, that's that's the. I think you just basically described the. You described our our research ten years ago. Well, good night, everybody. <laughs> um, so, that's everything. I mean, that's the, the, the basic question we started with in our research um, collaboration was just the idea of how people think about manhood. What do people think about when they think about what it means to be a man? And how does that differ from how they think about what it means to be a woman? And so we started, I think we just kind of started by asking people that question, basically, and, and, and gauging their responses. But that's what we found was that people, and this is true, I think, of cultures around the world, people think of manhood as something that um, people have to earn. You don't just automatically become a man. It's a social status that is earned. And not everyone becomes a man. Not everyone becomes a real man. And even if you become a man, you're not assured of staying a man. You can lose your manhood as well. And when we ask people about womanhood, they don't think about it quite that way. They think about it more as a biological category that you kind of blossom into womanhood. And <laughs> done. That's right. I that, just that doesn't translate boobs well. growing. <laughs> <laughs> well, you take the trainer off. Yeah, that's right. I'm a woman now. Right. That's, I'm a woman now. I'm a, I, should not have done that. And so, <laughs> me trying to sound like a female, way too manly. Um, so I think one thing that initially interested us was in many cultures around the world, there are literal manhood rituals that people have to undergo that usually involve risk, danger, sometimes violence. Um, 
putting bullet ants on yeah. your hands. And, uh, hand. Have you guys ever seen that by chance? And uh, the the uh, what, what, there's a tribe that? in the Amazon whose name I'm forgetting. The Satari Maui. The Satari Maui. Maui um, who <laughs> they have a manhood ritual. I think when the boys are in, in their teen years, maybe older. Um, mm, teen years, yeah. They have they they design this this glove and thread in the glove uh, bullet ants, which are kind of like fire ants, but exponentially Their more sting painful. is one of the I, most painful stings on the planet or something like yeah. that. I just did a podcast with this guy that wrote a book, Sting, that's all about insect stings and why some hurt more and the purpose for that, the evolutionary purpose and blah, blah, blah. And, um, and, and that there, he created this pain scale of one being the weakest and four being the most. And there's only three that are fours and a bullet ants is, is one of them. That's one sting of a bullet ant is the most painful thing you can experience from an insect. And to become a man... Um, <laughs> they have to stick their, hand, they stick their hand in this mitt for 20, 30 minutes and try not to pass out, basically. And, and once they, they complete the task, they, they are then... They're, they're not supposed to show signs of pain either. Right, right. And all other manhood rituals consist of, you know, circumcisions where you're not allowed to show pain, scarifications, a lot of... <laughs> In submitting yourself to intense pain without being able to show signs of bungee jumping. Bungee jumping. So anyway, there's no like IQ test rite of passages uh, out there. <laughs> no. Well, I mean, no. <laughs> and so, and so we wondered. I, so when Joe first started, when we first started talking about this idea, I, I hadn't been exposed to these anthropological findings before. So Joe was telling me about these, and I just thought, yeah, but. People, you know, people in this country won't, we don't, because we don't have those things, we, they, our undergrads or people that we met, test in our studies, they won't, they won't um, endorse the belief that manhood has to be hard won, you know, that has to be won um, with these brutal tests, but. Um, They've never seen a keg stand before at a frat party. Right. Well, yeah, I, I've never, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, so I didn't think we'd find anything, and. But we did. So people, so our undergrads who, um, and people, you know, everyone who's participated in our studies agree that manhood is, is something that has to be earned. Um, even if you don't live in a culture where you have to endure these kinds of ritualized manhood rites. Well, just to clear something up, and, and this is just a slight bit of a tangent, but something that I've read a tiny bit about and found really interesting. Can you talk about what, when you say cultures of honor, what does that mean? Um, so, there are cultures around the world that we that anthropologists call cultures of honor, and um, I think there's a couple definitions of honor. One definition of honor is kind of the universal definition of honor that we'd all agree that uh, honor is um, integrity, good character. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about a second definition of honor where it's specific to um, it's about reputation, particularly for men, and it's about the, the reputation that if you cross me. I will respond. I have to uphold my honor in the sense of, of my masculine reputation and, and the reputation of my family and my good name and so forth. And so it's this idea of, of honor as kind of precedence and honor as, as reputation. And in those types of cultures, um, kind of all of social life is built around this idea of honor. Honor is the center of economic life. It's the center of, is of family life. So, um, and women play a role in this as well. Um, for women, it usually means the avoidance of things that would bring shame to the family. Um, that usually has to do with sexual purity and so forth. So these kinds of cultures are uh, around the world, but in the Middle East, you see uh, honor cultures. This is where um, 
dispute. You see instances of like honor killing um, in the Mediterranean. So Greek culture, Italian culture, like Sicilian culture, the Godfather, you know, that comes from um, the mafia is really built on kind of culture of honor. And in the United States, the culture that I study the most, um, the South. Because they didn't, didn't that originate from herding? That's right. So, um, so one question is, where does this culture come from? What is I didn't even study for this, guys, <laughs> and I know that. So one hypothesis is that um, these, these cultures tend to arise or tend to spring up in places where wealth is portable and, and therefore stealable. So they tend to arise in herding cultures. So a person can gain honor by taking someone else's herd, taking someone else's cattle or sheep or whatever. Um, and increasing the size of your of your flocks. So you don't see cultures of honor in, in places where you grow wheat, for instance, because you don't have to protect your wheat, but you do have to protect your, your flocks. So the, the places I just described, like uh, the Middle East, uh, the kind of rocky areas of the Mediterranean, um, Scotland, where, which is where a lot of the original people from the South came from, Scotch-Irish, people that settled the, uh, the South, uh, those tend to be herding cultures and not agricultural cultures. And another aspect of honor cultures is that they don't tend to have a strong justice system, right? So it's right. kind of like vigilante. environments. Yeah, so you kind of have to defend your own property and your own rights. Handshake agreements sort of thing. And, right. So and honor kind of replaces the law or takes the place of kind of formal uh, mechanisms. Isn't that fascinating how, how, how like that influenced now the, the culture of, of, of the South and, and how, I mean, it, it just explains... Uh, it explains a lot. I, I I do a lot of my work in the South, and they they are definitely like. Uh, it, what's I'm trying to think of some study where where it, like you you insult. They did studies where they insulted people in different areas to yeah. see how they would respond. That's, that's, I'm sorry to like get way off of track. That's, that's actually some of my research. Oh really? Yeah, Can yeah. you talk about that? Yeah. Um, I didn't even. <laughs> Uh, it's actually my advisor's research, my graduate school advisor's yeah. research, Dove Cohen. Um, I'll, tell, I'll tell about, uh, you want me to tell you about one of his studies? So, I would love to, I it's fascinating. Probably the, probably the most famous study, the one you're probably thinking about, was his, his dissertation at the University of Michigan. So he brought um, people that had grown up in the South and people who had grown up in the North, men, into his laboratory. And the whole um, setup was, we're going to try to insult these men and see how they react. And the idea is that if you grew up in a culture of honor, which is men who grew up in the, the South, um, would react with more aggression than people who grew up in the North. And so the, uh, the setup was the, the guys were given a, a survey, a pencil paper survey. And they were asked to fill out the survey. And they said, when you're done with the survey, just walk it down the hallway, and, and we'll be in this other room. So as they're walking down the hallway, the, hall, the hallway has been constructed. It's a very narrow hallway, and there's um, tables and things around, such that to get down the hallway, um, you're going to have to work your way through a maze of things. And as they're walking down the hallway, an actor comes out who's in on the study um, and opens a file cabinet drawer. And just as the person walks by, the person intentionally hits him in the shoulder and says, asshole, and then keeps on walking. So the guy's been insulted at this point. And then he continues to walk down the hallway. And at this point, he is met by a, uh, a really big guy, um, six foot four, 250 pound guy. And he's walking towards him. It's, a, it's like a chicken game, basically, at this point. And the question is, how, how far will the guy walk towards the guy before he steps out of the way? Um, and what they found was, and this is among a number of things they measured, what they found was that um, Southerners reacted to this insult very differently than Northerners. First of all, when there was no insult, Southerners were actually very polite. So that's the other side of Southern culture is kind of the Southern politeness. 
um, they step out of the way really quick, you know, soon and let the guy pass. If they'd been insulted, um, all bets were off, right? So the northerners um, stepped aside, but the southerners, I think it was within 20 inches before they, they let the guy pass ahead. They also took measures of um, testosterone and cortisol, and they found that um, they showed physiological, southerners showed physiological responses that were different than northerners after being insulted. So they, they were, essentially, they were keyed up to, to, to be violent at that point. They were kind of ready to aggress. <laughs> it's amazing. Um, it, I actually experienced this. Um, I traveled around the country for several months while on crutches, and I found that um, that Southerners were very, very much so, uh, like, would go way out of their way to open doors and everything like that for me. And uh, yeah, and so there's there's this kind of dual politeness culture and, and, and um, violent culture, right? And sometimes those things actually go hand in hand. It's not the only culture that's like that. So there's a saying in the South that a Southern man will be polite right up until the time he kills you, right? <laughs> and, and I think the reason is, is those things are not coincidental. It's that um, if you live in a culture where there's the threat of violence around you, you walk on eggshells, right? You treat everybody with extreme politeness because the alternative is you offend someone and then you risk having to... You, uh, you know, go, go to blows with the person. Um, well, now, sorry, Jennifer. Now I'm so fascinated by the, uh, there's going this. There's going to be. There's always every time I do this live podcast, I'm always like I end up talking to one person for ten minutes, and then the next we're good. Um, so, what with with, uh, with the ever changing world, if, so this is something that this kind of cultural um, norm that that sort of evolved from from the, this kind of necessity during herding and having to protect your flock and all that, all this what happens when no longer there's the herding and yeah. all. so culture tends to be pretty stubborn sometimes and so things that were functional at one point sometimes are no longer functional but culture has a way of just kind of perpetuating itself mm. because people look around and socialization cues and um Culture just has a way of being stubborn. So where we see the, the strongest patterns of this is in the rural parts of the South where culture tends to be the most stubborn. So in the big cities, you don't see these types of patterns. So if you look at patterns of, for instance, homicide, um, homicide tends to be higher in the South, but particularly compared to the North, but particularly in the rural and the white areas of the South because that's where that culture of honor was really originated. Um, in big cities, the, the patterns are pretty similar from North to South. So big cities tend to be melting pots of lots of different cultures. Um, so uh, I guess that's a, there's kind of two, two answers built in there. One is that culture is stubborn. The other is kind of when you get to environments where lots of cultures kind of come together, uh, those patterns start to disappear. Mm. Yeah, there's this, uh, there's this thing that I think about all the time. That it's these, uh, there's these sea turtles that go from the west coast of South Africa to the, the uh, northeast coast of um, South America. Mm -hmm. To, uh, to lay their eggs, and they're like, why in the world would you? That makes no sense to swim that far. And what they eventually figured out was it was, it was something that happened when they were, used to be connected, uh, when it was just a river, and there was an evolutionary advantage to, for whatever reason, you'd swim across this river unless predators would eat your eggs, and those turtles that evolved this mechanism to be like oh okay i just go and i swim across and so that way i lay my eggs those uh, then their offspring would have the same inclination and then every generation it would get a few 
would be like, well, what's a few more feet? Uh, uh, and now, now they're swimming across the ocean for no reason whatsoever. They could just lay their eggs right there and not have to go through all of the trouble of getting eaten by sharks and all of the energy and everything else that it takes. And and things in our culture can be like that too. Like uh, people in the uh, it's like uh, now now you see a bar fight in the south. It's like, hey guys, you don't need to punch each other anymore. It's like you don't <laughs> you don't have livestock to protect. You can you can chill. Yeah. So let's get back into, um, so, so again, how did that translate exactly into the, um, just to work ourselves back into the, the gender roles, how did that translate into wanting to figure out this um, man honor situation? Do you want to take this or do you want me to keep going? No, you take it. <laughs> yeah, this is um, this is you, and then we're working back. Right, and right. I, um, I know what I'm doing. How did the here. how did the we? So I, I guess the the question became, um, what is kind of the universal thing that's underlying this culturally specific pattern? So I became more interested in just kind of um, is there some kind of more general psychology that underlies the way men think about themselves in general, and maybe this culture of honor is a specific pattern that's more general. And so I think the more general theme here is just the, the idea that manhood is, is kind of this precarious social status. That seems to be more universal. And that's, I think, where I connected with Jennifer's work. And we started kind of developing this, this idea of kind of precarious manhood as a theme that kind of runs through our work. I think that's, I think that's probably where the connection is. Well, I was going to say also it was practical because you've got a job in Florida and you can't study honor culture in Florida. You're because right. even though Florida is in the South, it doesn't qualify as that's an true. honor culture. So you kind of needed to come up with a new research idea anyway. Right. <laughs> you moved somewhere where you couldn't actually study what you were studying. Right. So Florida is technically part of the South. It was part of the Confederacy, but uh, the, the, the further south you go in Florida, the less southern it actually is, and we're kind of not very southern where we're at. Um, Unless you go in, inland a little more. That's, that's uh, I remember um, an ex of mine was from Dallas, and I remember being at her, uh, at her parents' house, and her mom... Uh, said something about being from the South, and her mom's like, we're not in the South? Are you kidding me? I'm like, no. that's, there's an ocean, like, right at the bottom of here. Um, but that's more considered, like, the Mississippi and all of that. Um, so, so when you talk about um, having to kind of earn this, you know, you, you uh, put these gloves with bullet ants on your hand, and if, if you faint, they give you a sex change or whatever. <laughs> um, so you have to earn this. But, but what about how, um, how kind of vulnerable uh, manhood is? Can you talk a little bit about some of the research yeah. with, the, with the vulnerabilities, Jennifer? Um, so you mean that we argue that it has to be earned, but it's easily lost? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, because manhood is um, what sociologists call an achieved status, so um, as opposed to an ascribed status, which is something you're born with, like race or sex or um, caste in some cultures. So, because it's an achieved status, it's it's something that has to be proved publicly and continually. Maybe not con you know not constantly, but um, it's something that can be questioned. And so in our research, we've shown that men respond to cues suggesting that they are not living up to their manhood 
um, or not display, you know, if you can make men, at least undergrad men in our samples, if you can make them feel that they've fallen short of some standard, then they become anxious, they become concerned about how they appear to others, they it's, overestimate. It's not that hard to do. No, it's really not. It's, it's, like it's almost <laughs> as if you're implying that young men are insecure or something, and I refuse to believe We're that. We're literally saying it. But, um, yeah, it's one of, it's like this research is really good because it's one of the effects, like most of my stuff, or a lot of my stuff doesn't replicate. This replicates. Like you get this effect every time you try. So one of the fun <laughs> but, things that in our lab for the last 10 years has just been to kind of come up with clever ways to make men feel insecure about their masculinity. <laughs> That's kind of what we do. <laughs> yeah. And, That's so um, wonderful. Yeah, well, <laughs> we're living the dream, so. <laughs> but, um, so. Joe, why did you sign up for this exactly? <laughs> it makes him feel more manly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Watching the undergrads get all insecure. Right. Like, yeah, I wouldn't fall for that kid. It's all, uh, it's all relative, so. Right. Yeah. But they also, um, they, so they, when, when our, experimenters debrief them after the study and tell them what we just, you know, this is why we gave you this feedback or this is why we made you do this thing. They all do not, they all say things like, oh, I'm sorry, I, I hope I didn't ruin your study because I don't care if, if my, you know, I'm not one of those guys. I'm sh I don't mind if I, if I act like a, you know, if I do something feminine. So none of them believe, they, they, they don't even believe that they actually are demonstrating our effect. So it, nobody, men don't like to, acknowledge that they feel threatened. <laughs> are, are there any, um, I'll, and I'll explain what, what they are, are there any IAT uh, tests oh. with this? I'm just curious, no? No, the, no. So, uh, uh, there, there are ones with gender identity, like to what extent do you associate yourself with your own gender or with a male or female, but not... Well, will you explain that just so they know what yeah. I was so talking the, about? The IAT is called, it's the implicit association, or the implicit associates or association uh, task. It's, um, yeah, implicit association test, I believe. Test, thank you. I, ju I, just, I just took one my, okay. last night. I used um, it in my dissertation. I should, so. have, I should know what it stands for. But um, it's a way of measuring the strength of associations between, in memory between concepts and evaluations. So a concept is like a noun, a category, man, woman, um, you know, cat, dog, and then an evaluation is an emotional reaction to something, an, an, um, an assessment of something as being good or bad. So the implicit, the IAT measures um, the ease with which people associate certain concepts, certain nouns with certain um, adjectives, feelings, and emotions. And so it's used, there are many different ways of measuring implicit attitudes. The IAT by definition, um, calculates the strength of association between, or kind of pits two attitudes against each other. So, um, for example, you could do a, you know, a Bush versus, um, um, a Kerry versus Bush IAT back in the day. Wow. <laughs> Sorry, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I know, I'm, I'm reaching really way back. There. Yeah, I'm, I'm dating myself. Sorry, I'm <laughs> keeping it relevant. But um, okay, you probably could have <laughs> done it. Who's this carry person you're talking about? <laughs> I just didn't want to say the T word. You could probably have done. <laughs> you could probably have done one about the most recent two candidates. And um, and so it, it by definition evaluates the speed with which you 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 can associate positive and negative emotions with either dogs or cats, either Trumps or Clintons, right? That kind of thing. Yeah. So so you can take um you can take things like uh, flowers and insects 
and and they'll put they'll put negative words after showing you a picture of a flower or positive words after showing you a picture of an insect and it'll be like here's this button is for both insects and positive words and this button is for both flowers and negative words and then they do it the other way around and you're trying to do it as quickly as you possibly can and it will take you longer to hit the button when it's a positive word after an insect and put the positive and insect together well then they do it with things like elderly um, versus young people or I took one last night race uh, uh, there's a race IIT which I think everyone in the world should take so you you go um, you uh, beforehand it goes uh, how how much do you think you favor white people or black people or whatever it might be? And I'm like, well, you know, I'm, and I know how this test works even. I'm like, well, you know, I'm a super liberal guy and equality for everybody, blah, blah, blah. And I'm also a guy who's from a small town in, uh, in Wisconsin and was raised around um, all white people and for, for the first 20 some years of my life. And and you can even take like, um, you know, cultural studies professors and do the same thing, and it and it doesn't matter. Like everyone will fail at this test. Like I was still, uh, it's, it's super embarrassing to admit, uh, but you 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 still go and and it might you might have an easier time selecting the negative word after a black person or selecting the negative word after an old person. And these are things that you don't have like conscious control over. So that's what I was asking with um, with the idea of masculinity and, so and femininity. I, but what would be the like? What are the opposing categories that you would well, use in the IAT about gender threat? Like, like real man, not real man. Maybe yeah, or... like trucks versus flowers, oh. and like okay. that that sort of thing. Feminine, feminine, and masculine things, and then showing a picture of okay. a male and female face ahead of time, and and seeing how. And then you ask people how how strictly they define gender roles, and you're like, I like. Oh it. well, I don't. Okay, well, so here's one thing I, I often did. I often come up with lots you of do. studies <laughs> of my own. <laughs> this this is I you didn't know we would. Yeah, I didn't know we'd leave with some new research ideas. But um, so one thing that I did do with an honors student, Caitlin Bronson, um, was um, had she. She found a database of facial images that went from masculine to feminine in kind of a series of gradations. So it was like using computer morphing technology. It went from a super masculine face and then it kind of gradually became more feminine until it was a super feminine face. And there were maybe 12 of these in the series. And she showed them to men and women and asked them for each face to make as quick as quickly as possible to decide whether this face is my gender or not my gender. And what she found was that um, men allowed fewer faces, fewer of the ambiguous. So you know, right at the midpoint was a 50% feminine, 50% masculine face. Men allowed fewer of those faces into their gender than women did, and they also took longer to make the decision. So it was like they, it was more important to them to do, to, to make a, a correct assessment. And then their assessment aired on the side of saying, if you're kind of ambiguous, you're not a man. Um, 
so because I'm so slender, I'm used to being <laughs> like, you're not a man. I've gotten that before from guys, and now I understand why. I go for jokes that don't all land, everybody. Um, <laughs> um, so the main reason why I ask is because, um, and you might have an answer for me um, with this next point, is there ways of, of priming this to not to get a different result, like so in the so in the race I, I, IAT that um, um, that I was just talking about. Another thing that they'll use to offset that is if beforehand you show people a bunch of pictures of positive, um, uh, you know, African American like Martin Luther King and Maya Angelou and and these kinds of. If you show them enough of um, those pictures ahead of time then people perform much better at these tasks and have a much easier time just implicitly. And we're just talking about you're hitting this button as fast as you possibly can. They perform at a faster, they do a better job and more accurate job um, of this. So I was just wondering if there's any kind of ways of priming so, uh, so, that, so that guys wouldn't respond as aggressively. Like, like if there's something that you could do ahead before the braiding task, so after they get done braiding the hair, they're like, ah, I don't need to punch that thing. Which, by the way, how do you set that up when after, oh, you're done with your study, so now, like every other study, you get to punch a bag. <laughs> well, nothing suspicious. Of course, I just did a study, so I guess I'll punch this thing. <laughs> they don't ask a lot of questions. They just do what we tell them to like, do. Ooh, I get to punch something. <laughs> yeah, that's right. well, we told them it was a study of people's performance at novel activities, and so the first thing they're asked to do is braiding something, which is probably pretty novel for most undergrads. And then we say, oh, the next task you've been selected to do is a punching task. And like Joe said, you know, these students are doing this for credit. They're probably stoned. They're just doing <laughs> what we tell them to do. So. <laughs> They don't really have, I mean, you know, they're curious, but they're not They suspicious. go in expecting to do some weird stuff. A lot yeah, of times. Yeah. yeah. Well, a lot of times you can go like, and for another study, punch this exactly. thing. Exactly. Um, so, okay, so your question was, is there something you can do to kind of um, offset, inoculate men against the threat to their gender? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Joe, take this one. Oh, I was hoping you'd take this one, because I don't know if we've ever come up with a well, primary. Okay, so one thing is that in many of our studies, we randomly assign men to get either gender-threatening or gender-affirming mm. feedback. And when they, if they, if they, um, if they, so we'll give them, they'll, we'll have them take a test of gender, common gender knowledge, and then we give them a bogus score. And in some, you know, half of the men get a score saying that you're super masculine. And those men seem to be you know, a okay with they're they're not angry and upset and aggressive. So the 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 translation of that in the real world is that there are certain boys and men who have higher status, and those people. And you kind of hinted to that earlier, where if you have a lot of masculinity or masculine credit, you can afford to kind of do something more feminine. There's some sociology work. Um, uh, C.J. Pasco does stuff where she looks at she went into high schools and found that the high schools are kind of hierarchically arranged. So they're the, the guys at the top are typically the jocks. They have the highest masculinity. And so she interviewed these guys and some of the, the jocks, the football players. So even among jocks, there's a hierarchy of like which sports are the most masculine. Football's at the top. Um, this one guy she interviewed said, yeah, I, 
I let my girlfriend paint my, my fingernails all the time, and I listen to these sappy love songs. And so she calls this jock insurance, that uh, if you have a lot of masculine kind of credit already, you can afford to do these things, whereas someone kind of down the, the social ladder, their status is already more precarious, so they can't afford to do these things. And then there are guys who probably just reject it in the first place. Well, it's, it reminds me of, um, I, I spent a, from a small town in Wisconsin, La Crosse, Wisconsin has the most bars per capita in the entire United States, and uh, I, I spent a lot of time in their downtown getting um, out of my mind drunk and doing all sorts of embarrassing things. And one thing um, that, that you pick up on when you spend enough time in bars is like the huge bouncer guy that could kick anyone's ass is usually like the chillest guy ever. He has nothing to prove to anybody. It's the, it's the little guy with Napoleon syndrome that you have to worry the most about. Yeah. We, in one of our studies, um, we don't usually um, study, we don't usually look at testosterone or cortisol. We're not hormone people necessarily, but, um, but in one study, we looked at hormones, and we found that um, it was men who are lower in testosterone who reacted with the most stress to a gender threat. Men who were high in testosterone did not seem as bothered by being uh, given feedback indicating that they weren't very manly. So I think that's consistent with the idea that if you're kind of walking around with a lot of testosterone, you don't have as much to prove, and it's not, you can kind of brush off a threat to your manhood, but it's the low testosterone guys who are maybe at the bottom or the lower end of the social hierarchy who, for whom it's very stressful to get challenging feedback that challenges their manhood status. Also, we, we study college students because it's convenience for us because that's who happens to be around, but it's also, it works in our favor because it, there's also age differences, and I think that age in particular, that kind of age at stage of life is where people have a lot of anxiety about kind of their status as men. They're just kind of turning into men, and they are not married and settled down yet. So if you look at, like, um, violence data, it really spikes around the 18 to 24. Homicide data shoots up at that age. And I think that's partly because of testosterone, and that shoots up at that age as well. But also this is, like, kind of status uncertainty. People are kind of trying to figure out where they are in the status, and then after that they kind of settle down. When you talk about status uncertainty, can you talk a little bit about um, some of your work with uh, employment and um, uh, kind of employment being threatened or unemployment numbers and, and, and what, what happens to someone when they are unemployed or worried about becoming unemployed and gender differences there? Um, yeah, we collected some data a couple years ago where we, this was right, actually it was about five years ago where um, we wanted to survey men kind of, um, this was kind of at the tail end of the recession, so it was, um, this was a time that was a good opportunity for us to collect data because there was a lot of, I think, anxiety in general about um, high unemployment rates, and particularly among men. A lot of the people that were most affected by the last recession were working class men. So we, um, we did a national, nationally representative survey, so we uh, surveyed, these were not college students, these were a broad sample of American men uh, and women. And um, Jennifer, you're going to have to help me out on the details of this. Okay, bit. so we, <laughs> we measured two things. One was we asked, um, we oversampled men who were, or people who were unemployed, right? So yeah. we asked unemployed people to uh, um, estimate how much other, 
how much gender status did they lose in other people's eyes at the time that they lost their job? So what do you men, think other people think of you, yeah, basically? So men answered, you know, at the time of your job loss, to what extent did other people think you were not a real man, you know, not a, not a non-man enough? And um, women answered the same question about, you know, to the extent, what extent they thought, other people thought they were not a real woman when they lost their job. And then we also asked employed people to to imagine a hypothetical unemployed man or woman and say, you know, how much of a man, a real man is this person or how much of a real woman is this person? And what we were interested in was the discrepancy between, in particular, between men's, unemployed men's beliefs about how much manhood they lost when they lost their job and other people's evaluations of how much, you know, of, of how real a man is if he loses his job. And men overestimated how much gender status they lost relative to how other people evaluated a hypothetical jobless man. Women didn't overestimate. They were fairly accurate. So, you know, women didn't think they lost their womanhood and other people agreed that women don't lose their womanhood, womanhood when they lose their job. But men thought, other people think I'm not a real man and other and people rating a hypothetical man were like, yeah, he's a, he's a real man just because he lost his job doesn't make him less of a man. So... Well, so this is just other women in general, not the woman that they were with. Oh, wait. I, maybe I didn't explain that clearly. What? Other women in general? What? It, like, like the, the way that women in general see this guy that lost his job. Oh, no. You're, th- you're thinking about the aggression study. Okay, so no. No, no, no. I, I, I'm just, other, just no, asking generally. It wasn't generally. just women but, who like, evaluated. It was men and women evaluated a hypothetical man who lost his job. Yeah, and yeah. men... Regardless of the sex of the raider, men thought that when they lost their job, other people saw them in general as less of a real man. Yeah, well, how how do you know that women aren't just like being nice though when they say that? I mean, isn't isn't uh, it, honestly like isn't isn't one of the number one causes of divorce that uh, that uh, um, or one of the I won't say causes one of the correlations of divorce. It, is that men with um, with lower uh, lower income than their spouses? Isn't isn't the divorce rate like astronomical? I've heard that. I couldn't verify uh, that for certain. Well, but... then I'll verify it. <laughs> every, every time I ask a question that I think I know, I, maybe what the answer is, and the scientist doesn't, then I pretend I <laughs> definitely know what the. I answer think the larger is, point here, though, is that. What you're getting at is work is central to male identity. We don't live in a culture where men stick their hands in gloves and have fire ants. We don't have any way of kind of these rites of passage to prove masculinity. So I think we live in a culture where this is one of the main means that men say, I'm a real man. I have a job. I can support my family. Uh, And I also think that women might value it more than what they are letting on in uh, self-reporting studies. Okay, but but our question was just about to what extent is this person not a real man? And I think that that's a different question than would you want to be married to this person, right? right or right, would right. you be happy if your partner lost his job? So I think, you know, we were just looking at that very isolated assessment of a person. Right. So women were not saying a man who loses his job is not a real man, but they might have agreed right. with, I, I, but I don't want to be married to him. So right, right. we didn't ask that. So then it, it does like I think it ju- does justify the uh, guys being a little insecure and 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 worry. I think that there is like a tremendous 
It, there there might even be a lopsided cost. If, 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 I don't know if that's like sexist to say or whatever, but that might, there might be a lopsided cost to a to a guy. Um, isn't it possible that that if if you have a study that's concluding that maybe men are overvaluating how low they are perceived by others when they lose their job, isn't it possible that there is a very, very true social cost that we've evolved to, not, not even just evolved, but, uh, maybe I shouldn't say that, uh, but, but just that, that there is... There is a real effect in our society that is maybe hard to detect in a study of self-reporting where you're thinking about this this poor, sad sack that just lost his job and maybe you don't want to say anything mean or negative about this imaginary person. Both of those things can be true. So there probably is a social cost to unemployment for men losing their jobs, but they also may overestimate the stigma that they would face. So I, I, I would guess both of those things are true. I mean... Well, just that I think one of the conclusions, one of the take-home messages of our work is that, yeah, there's a genuine social cost to men of all kinds of failures of manhood that um, that are not just individual. It's not just individual men being overly insecure. There's actually a social cost that is real. And so, yeah, I didn't mean to imply that it's all in men's heads. Oh, I'm, not, I'm okay. not saying that you did. <laughs> no, you I, I mean, I, I, guess, I guess what I'm thinking of is, is then the, the connection with that to, um, to aggression in men. And the reason why I bring it up is because um, I did a lot. So I didn't go to college or anything. This is just stuff that I'm interested in. Didn't need college, by the way. Um, but that was meant to be a joke. Um, <laughs> hooray education. Um, but I, so I ended up instead, and this is why you should definitely go to college. I ended up instead working in, um, factory, doing factory work for like four or five years. And when you work with uh, a bunch of factory workers, especially like aging ones that have been through like a couple divorces and are worried that they aren't getting their raises and everything else, there seemed to me there was, insecurities abound and and there was a lot of masking of those insecurities and just doing like being the most macho man like you need to obsess over football and get drunk and get in fights like this is like middle-aged men that you're talking about that you don't you don't see this kind of behavior in um in like stable professionals uh Interestingly, there's some stuff in, in, um, in the sociology literature about, so that's, that's probably true, but um, it's, it, it also is, is really um, prevalent in um, Wall Street. Um, it's really prevalent in uh, Silicon Valley. So well, Wall, are, Wall Street is not a stable job. Okay, yeah. <laughs> that, that's one of the but least stable But I guess what I'm saying is it's, 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 it's really prevalent in white-collar, kind of high-status yeah. jobs as well. So these guys are um, among surgeons, these guys who say, but it's, it's, uh, it manifests itself in different ways. So for those mm. guys, it's, um, you prove your masculinity by working 100 hours a week without sleeping. Um, in Silicon Valley, they, they talk about anybody who has to leave the office to go home for dinner. Like, that's, you're a wimp, right? If you, can, if you have to order in pizza and stay and put in a, like a stay until midnight that's that's how you prove your masculinity well this this goes really nicely into the uh i I saw a paper you did about the the asking about flexibility in in the workplace can you talk about that a little bit 
Uh-oh. Okay. Now you're going to have to help me out. And, yes. and we're, we're going to oh, take questions in like a, right. se- in a second. Will be, will be a great time, like right after this. Okay. So um, we, this was college students, right? So now we're going back to these people are preparing to enter the labor force, but they're not employed workers. But we asked men and women to rank um, the importance of 10 different qualities uh, of the, for their future job. And things like salary, benefits... And then embedded in there was flexible work schedules and like good work family balance or work life balance. And both men and women ranked like flexible work arrangements and work life balance among the top three. Like the only thing higher maybe was salary or right. quality, like autonomy. Salary or something. was the highest okay. rank, but so that was number flexible. two and three. And this was we were kind of surprised about that. And then we asked men and women the likelihood that they would actually seek flexibility in their job. As well as we asked, and we also asked them to um, indicate how, you know, how will other people view you if you seek work flex? And we gave them a series of traits that were kind of masculine and feminine, like assertive, independent, strong, you know, warm, nurturing, um, passive. And men, for men, but not for women, and I'm maybe this is, I'm not sure I'm getting this right, but I think for men, um, to the extent that they thought that other people would think they were more feminine for seeking work flex, they said they were less likely to do it, even though they had ranked it very highly as among, you know, in their fantasy job. Right. So, maybe to simplify this, so um, men and women both want work-life balance they say this over and over in lots of studies. Men are less likely to to do things to seek work life balance. They're they're more likely to, or they're less likely to um, ask for half time after a kid is born, or to ask for a flexible work schedule. And the reason seems to be because they fear being stigmatized by others. And whether that stigma is real or not, that's another question. But well, there's some research suggesting that people do view men less favorably for seeking flex right. um, after parent after the birth of a child. So, yeah. So really? Might, yeah. New, <laughs> new dads like who's this sissy taking time off of work to spend time with his <laughs> new firstborn child? Dudes are such assholes. I know. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, there's like no right. So nobody ever says in a study they're sissies, right? But they lo- they rate them lower in um they're they're less ideal workers. Work. Yeah, they're they're they rated lower in cl- less. and right. So they're people are less likely to say they should be promoted. They so yeah. Subtle. So they're taken less seriously at work. All right. Raise your hand if you have any questions and if you don't, that's totally fine as well. <laughs> um but um yeah, uh, right right here. And then if someone else can someone else can raise their hand too, and we can get a second um, and and third mic going. For, you guys can share that one, and then uh, come over here. And then there's there's one in the back when he's done there. So yeah. Hi. Hi. So I've been thinking this whole time. That this uh, hold, hold on one second. You guys hearing her? Okay. Can you hear? Me? Oh, okay, good. Hi. It's sometimes there we go. for me up here. So I've been wondering this whole time, the most fundamental question is, what do women want? So we have all these men, more specifically, we have all these men who are busy performing masculinity. I saw some study at some point that said that women like manly masculine men when they're ovulating and need to breed, but most of the time, when they're not ovulating, they want a more feminine man who will be sensitive. Is that true? Can you speak to that? And so, and if it is true, are men just performing their masculinity for each other, or is there a point to it? That's all. 
Or are they performing it for ovulating women? Well, that's, I mean, I, I've talked about this a lot on the podcast. This is, so like, you can this, this is like Marty Hazelton's yes, exactly. work. This, right. is, this is so you show an ovulating woman pictures of various men, and the more masculine-faced men is rated more attractive when women are fertile and, and because they're potentially getting more genes because um, I, I'm, I'm going to just go... Better genes, not more genes. Oh, yeah. Did I say more? You did. Oh, thank you for correcting me. Better I'm, ge- I'm no geneticist. Get more genes. That's a problem. Um, that's an actual defect. Um, no. <laughs> um, so, did, but can I answer um, Dr. Julia Irwin's question? I happen to know the questioner. So, I think that there's a cheater. pretty. <laughs> I think there's a pretty common consensus among people who study masculinity that men perform masculinity primarily for other men, that men um, men are more likely to punish other men and reward other men for masculine displays. And also, um, this also is rooted in evolutionary theories that men compete against other men for access to mates. So it's kind of like um, you're, I mean, that that's just maybe an overgeneralization, but that Masculinity is done more for the benefit of besting other men. Well, you can but say the, the same about makeup. That men wear makeup to best women. other men? Oh, yes, you could. And David Buss makes that argument, yeah, that women wear, women's performing beauty is for other women. But I mean, I, yeah. think, I think there's hardly any man on the planet that likes uh, makeup on a woman as much as, as women like applying it or, or putting it. <laughs> Or, or, or not, not, not like applying it. That's a pain in the ass. What I mean is their perception of how much men like the applied makeup. I, I doubt very much that there's uh, too many men that like as like it as much as I get to talk about women too. I'm not gonna feel uncomfortable. Um, uh, so, uh, and and so by the way, just so everyone's like. Uh, clued into the the ovulation thing, which you, are, are you like not a fan of? Uh, is that or you're just <laughs> no that 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 research that you're probably already familiar? I'm a historian. Oh so I'm, oh okay so 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 let so let me let me breeze over. Let me give you like the very very quick version of of what's happening from like an evolutionary psychologist, biologist point of view, and I'm leaving out just tons and tons of variables here. So um, so the reason why women might prefer men um, that are a little more manlier during ovulation is because um, testosterone is perhaps this honest indicator of fitness because everything that's an honest indicator of fitness works based on this handicap principle thing, which means you have to incur a cost for it to be a true indicator of fitness, much like a peacock feather weighs, uh, wears this big, dumb, heavy thing, and now it can't fly at, at all, but uh, the females don't have this. The men have this big thing to lug around, and then they go, look, lady, look, nothing's ate me yet. I'm, I'm pretty sexy. I'm strong enough to still get away from stuff, even with this big, dumb thing. Testosterone is really hard on the immune system, and and um, and is very very costly to men. Therefore, 
uh, at puberty, if you have a very hardy immune system and your environment has been good for you, potentially you can release more testosterone. And these are all like very tiny little nuanced things, and and I won't get into the myriad of other things that can be. But but this is this is with the ovulation research what they're kind of talking about. So during during that time, you're looking for these good genes, not more of them. Um, the exact right number of good genes, and and um, and then during the other times, you're looking for more of a provider, a slimmer fellow like me who's going to cuddle with you, and and uh, and um, and then you're going to go off and cuckold with some big football uh, uh, guy. And it really doesn't bother me because there's DNA tests these days, and now that's his burden. Um, I get off on tangents sometimes and might be projecting some weird inner insecurities now that I think about it. But, um, <laughs> but, uh, but the, the point is, is that, um, for me, uh, I don't want to have sex with a woman that's ovulating anyway. That's, that's, so I'm, I'm really better off. Um, so, so we didn't answer your question so, at all of what do women want. Uh, no, I don't know what women want. That's what I'm not but, but but the but the idea is, is that men are performing these te- like like a Men's Health magazine, for example, has larger, bigger men in it than what women actually prefer for their body type because it's like men actually thinking that like women want this buff thing and not themselves. Yeah, so there's, there, there's research to back that point up. So there is research to suggest that on the question of what women want, what men think women want differs from what women actually want. So men will over-predict body type, so they think women want, you know, if you ask men to manipulate a computer picture of a, of a body, men will add, like, I think 28 pounds of muscle onto their own body. <laughs> and women say, no, I want a normal-looking guy, but men think women want huge guys. Um, what if I just want, like, 21 pounds of muscle? <laughs> so, yeah, there, there's one answer. to but, but In terms of body type, women apparently don't want as, as masculine of men as what men think women want. Um, all right. How's the sound? Okay, great. I, I, I feel like, did we... Was that an okay answer? Okay. I want to make sure. I got off on a weird rant there for a second. Now I'm all in my head. Um, yeah, so uh, I kind of have two quick questions. I'll let you guys choose, actually. Um, in the sake of the psychonaut good trip, um, Shane's thing. Oh, for, for the rest, of, well, I explained it beforehand. I do a show about um, psychedelics. Uh, and so then I often get questions about uh, psychedelics during my thing. So that's where this is. Right. So I guess like uh, briefly, if you're interested and have the experience or feel like talking about it, how do you feel like psychedelics change the experience of gender perception? And, you know, is it okay? Like maybe someone who's had that kind of mind bending experience. Like like a good question for Jennifer. Is it okay? That's a good question for Shane. (laughs) That's a good question for me. Can we pass it to Shane? Yeah. uh, Okay. So I'll ask you guys a question then specifically. So I just spent some time in Peace Corps, Panama and I live in an indigenous village. And so one of their um, ancient war games, pre-Columbian, is that the men get together and they throw balsa sticks at each other. But while they, while they do that, they wear the traditional female garb. So thoughts 
on that? <laughs> I, I asked them, and, you know, it's, the culture's kind of, unfortunately, so lost. They don't really have a reason for it anymore. They just do it because that's what they do. Um, but thoughts based on your experience? <laughs> based on her personal experience. I've never heard of this. What are basal sticks? Balsa is a type of wood. It's a very light wood. Yeah, it's like does, it, does it, is it. Does it hurt? I mean, if you get hit in the ankle or the knee, it does hurt. But typically, you try to aim for the calves. It sounds like they're making. Are they like mocking women? Like they're performing women? That, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's. That's why. So I this asked. reminds me. This is maybe a bit of a stretch of a connection. But when, when we were at high school, there would be the powder puff football game where all the guys would dress up like the cheerleaders, and the cheerleaders would dress and play football. Maybe it's this kind of um, gender role replacement thing or switch, and it's maybe like kind of performance art that way. I have no idea. I've never heard of this. I also don't know. I mean, yeah, that's... I just find it interesting because it's, like it the Latino culture is very machismo, so, right? Very male-dominated, very Maybe here's a controlling. better answer. So I, I think what's going on in, the, in those cases, at least with, the, with the, like, the powder puff game that we did in high school was that this is a way to kind of say, look how terrible I am at being a, for men, right, right, right. The, the jocks. Look how terrible I am at being a cheerleader. Don't I make a terrible looking cheerleader? So it's actually a way of kind of reinforcing masculinity by showing, like, I'm, uh, this is, it's obviously parody, right? We're, we're so bad at being women that we're, we're actually really masculine. I think that it's, um, um, uh, it could also be an advertisement of, of um, security. It, it, could, it could be the, handica- it could be the handicap principle yeah. incurring this, this, what's usually a cost. Usually if you dress like this, you get beat up by your friends or something like that. Now you're showing like, hey, I'm in, I'm in this outfit, but I'm still a man. In right. fact, man enough to make myself vulnerable. And uh, right. vo- vulnerability is one of the truest um, indicators of, of fitness. And the fact that it happens in this ritualized context where everyone's doing it. I mean, does anyone say I'm opting out or? Um, very rarely. I mean, everyone, it's kind of like a three-day thing. Everyone comes together, gets really drunk, uh, you know, has a bunch, gets a bunch, there's a bunch of food. Well, there's your answer. Are you yeah. Sure? <laughs> Alcohol. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Key to civilization. Yeah, I don't know. I have no idea. It's a safe context in which to play with gender roles, but I don't... Who you hasn't know. gotten drunk and put on a dress, right? <laughs> <laughs> with a well, bunch of whatever, Joe. I don't do that every Thursday. I mean, this the balsa wood at the ankles Thursday, is, is what is bizarre sure. to me. That part doesn't fit. Because like, if you're just going to get dressed up and have fun, that's one thing. But why are they pummeling each other with balsa wood? <laughs> it's not... <laughs> I don't know. I, so, maybe they were just messing with you. Like they're like, oh, a white guy is, you know, like let's let's fake him out and pretend I wish, that this I is wish a that ritual. were the case. No, it's very like it happens oh. everywhere all the time. Okay. Yeah, it's all right. actually the, the historically that's how they intermix their gene pools. So like one like because they're so isolated, right? So they would invite other communities to come play, and then that's how they exchange men and like men and women would. Get together so women that observe way. this. Women are just the oh, women, audience. Women actually fight as well. They okay. don't. They don't throw balsa, but they do bare knuckle box. Um, all, both sexes. Wow. What well, what culture was this? Uh, the Nobe Bugle in Panama. It's an indigenous culture. All right. Yeah. You're the cultural guy, Joe. You should know. This is no. This is new to me. Okay. I gave you my answer. We should we should look this up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Um, uh, sure. So I have um, 
essentially two questions. The first question is about uh, the development of your tools when you're looking at these psychological studies and how you, um, how you create a tool that isolates some specific condition. And the second question is about Jesus. <laughs> so I happen, to know, know? I happen to know Dr. Boston. Like a good question for Jennifer. Yeah. So a few years ago, she sent me a link oh, no. to a bunch of photographs of Jesus. Oh, I did? Yeah, you did. And it reminds me of one of the tools that you were discussing earlier. Oh, yeah, and, that's right. We, he piloted and, our, our religiosity study. Okay, yeah. And it was utterly baffling. And to describe it quickly, it was a series of images of Jesus. Uh, and that is the Jesus Christ. I should, uh, I should make that clear. And some of them have Jesus... Oh, right. Banishing people from, okay. yeah, uh, yeah. from palaces or whatever. And others have Jesus cradling a sheep. And uh, I just want to know what the hell that was. Okay. So, it, I, so these two questions were related because your first question was how do we develop our materials? And our, the answer is by getting, our friends to, by getting our friends to pilot, to give ratings of strange stimuli, stimulus materials. Um, so that was a study that we did in collaboration with some of our grad students and Dove Cohen um, and some other people. And we were interested in the, so there's, you know, men tend to be less religious than you women. You should make this story short because okay. it didn't work. All right. If you remember. Um, yeah, so we wanted, to, we wanted people to rate how masculine versus feminine the images of Jesus were, were so that we could examine whether men were, um, after a gender threat, were men more drawn to a masculine Jesus. If you recall, some of the images were very I erotic and very well the muscular eroticism of Jesus. and a little bit, you know, oiled up. Something right. I think about yeah. a lot. Yeah. <laughs> there, yeah. there is a desk, desktop screensaver. Right. Yeah. So we were we 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 were interested in whether men would find those sexy masculine Jesus, which is the plural of Jesus's, um, more appealing or enticing after a gender threat, and that study didn't work. Unfortunately, we didn't find what we were looking for there. So that's the, the answer to your first question is we, how do we develop materials? We, we do a lot of studies that don't work, but we... That's every scientist ever yeah. mostly fails. That's, and that was an example of one but of the But we did a lot of Google work. searches for Jesus images to the point where my husband was like, what's happening to you? Why are, how come every time I walk past you, you're Googling Jesus? <laughs> and so... Yeah, we do a lot of Google image searches in our line of work. It's fun. You should become a research psychologist. Let's take like two more questions, maybe. Okay. Um, uh, and um, ooh, ooh. yeah, Over here. Um, I so I've I've got uh, I've got two. You can choose to answer one. Um, oh, you're fine. So I, I mean, two more people asking questions. So on manhood, um, I, I wonder how much of your studies have. Uh, been devoted to kind of nature versus nurture uh, in terms of, you know, I mean, is manhood, um, is that biological anthropology? You know, this idea of being manly and the protector, uh, sexual dimorphism exists. Men are larger. Were they the protector? Is that is that more nature versus nurture? I'd like your thoughts on that. Um, and then also uh, regarding the honor culture. Um, do you have any input on like a socioeconomic overlay? Is this much more prevalent in uh, you know where you're not as economically uh, advantaged? So that's that's my two. 
Did I tell you guys I have smart listeners to this I podcast? Did. Oh man, I can do the first I, those are the first one is the one just an enormous two-hour-long can oh, of worms, but, but I that's can, fine. I can do it quickly, right? And then you can yeah, do the second one. Those are awesome. I, just so I, I do think. I mean, I don't. I guess. Um, I guess the the kind of easy answer is we're we're not really so far. We haven't made it our goal to determine to what extent this is nature versus nurture. We're social psychologists, so we're more interested in the nurture aspect of things than the nature aspect of things. But I, um, I'm yes, absolutely. You know, um, because of sexual dimorphism, um, men are physically better suited to do certain kinds of labor and do certain kinds of risky jobs. So, to some degree, I believe these things that we study are influenced very much by um, nature and biology, but. Just our interest is in the social implications of these things. Um, and now I'll let Joe I, answer. I mean, first off, I think about this a lot when I'm chopping wood day in and day out. Um, I, I mean, if you, if you look at like our hunter-gatherer ancestors, if, uh, like, if, I, if my ancestors just had a child and there is firewood that needs to be chopped, and there is a baby that needs to be held. This is just perfect common sense to split up these roles in the most efficient way possible, uh, which is me, with that's a little bit bigger and stronger, chopping. It's not really in the most efficient way because you, there's a lot of within sex variants. So, um, on av- you know, men on average are stronger and better wood choppers than women on average are. But Look at how long my arms I are! Know, it's right. crazy. I know, but I you guess know how much my point. Wood I can carry. But it, the most efficient thing to do <laughs> would be to across, you know, collapsing across sex. You know, assign the most strong people of both sexes to to do the wood chopping, and the most nurturing people of both sexes to do the caregiving. No, I mean, I don't even think you need to cite Sale. I mean, I still think that there's so many social influences besides all that that it's like you know every episode is well, you don't say nurture or nature. It's always a, it's always both the genes and environment coming together. And you guys happen to study more of the environmental influences and it doesn't like no scientist is studying every aspect of every thing right so there, there still isn't i mean it's just like a yin and yang right there isn't just just as much genes related as it is environmental how, how could you ever possibly tease it apart yeah that's, that's the answer most most scientists at this point reject this dichotomy between nature and nurture it's nature nature and nurture uh inseparable mm-hmm. So socioeconomic. Oh yeah. So the the question was about the socioeconomic relationship to honor. Yeah, I mean, I would imagine that you know, as you rise and rise on that economic scale, you have some opportunity to supplant um, honor with cash, right? Just as the jocks do with jock credit. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, yeah. So oftentimes, when in cultures where honor arises on our norms, they tip, tend to be in frontier regions where um, they tend to be economically marginalized people, so um, where law enforcement is weak and on kind of the margins of society. So that would suggest that there are lower SES, although um, if you think about kind of classic culture of honor in the South, 
um, there were kind of like these southern gentlemen who would duel with the white gloves and, and, and so forth. So I think it cuts across socioeconomic status. I guess what I would say is that honor is something that's traded among men of equal socio socioeconomic status. So someone of high socioeconomic status would not feel dishonored by an insult from someone of lower socioeconomic status because he wouldn't even bother with that person. So you can only gain or lose honor to someone who's kind of relatively about the same level of socioeconomic status. So I guess the, the, the short answer is that I think honor probably matters across socioeconomic status, but honor is traded among men of equal socio or roughly equal socioeconomic status. What about, um, what about something like, uh, like I just did an episode about um, uh, uh, that a, a guy had uh, written a book about um, uh, basically the history of, of methadone uh, or of, of uh, meth essentially and but he 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 has studied um, the Appalachian Trail he, he was uh, he was an anthropologist um, and studied the Appalachian Trail where things were like a little more transient and a little a little more it seems like an area like that would have a little more of a cultural honor kind of vibe to it i mean someone can someone can hook up your meth trailer and take off with yep. it just yeah, like yeah. your sheep so, um <laughs> yeah so i mean Appalachian culture tends to be culture of honor, but also I think what you're getting at is kind of the lawlessness of the culture, right? Yeah. And so, yeah, so I think I'd mentioned before that in, in, in cultures where um, the law doesn't exist, and in, this oh, would be okay. a case where you, you're kind of avoiding the law, so like mafia culture and so forth, what replaces that formal laws are kind of the unwritten codes of honor. Right? Snitches and so, get stitches. That, exactly, right? right. So that's, that's an honor code, right? Remember that. Um... <laughs> Uh, can we do uh, one more? Uh, uh, all right. Um, do, where's the other? Uh, oh. oh, sorry. Oh, no problem. Sure. sure. There we go. Okay. So I have a question. It's uh, a little bit of a change of pace, but I wanted, if you're an anthropologist, I want to know you think. Also, my favorite word is anthropophobic. Oh, can you speak up just a little bit and start over? And so my favorite word is anthropophobiac, which is a person who's afraid of people. Literally, a true anthropophobiac looks in the mirror and is scared of himself. But what I wanted to ask you was a slight change of pace, but I learned it in my uh, communications class. There's like anthropology base as well. But um, there was one theorem that I heard that was called the superior wharf theorem. Have you ever heard of it? You? Yes. Yeah, okay. So there's one, two, and a great many. They wanted to know if language could if language could just limit your ability to think. So there was and the they studied this one tribe, there's African tribe, they said there was one, two, and a great many. And they said that's literally all they thought of it and quantified it as that. But they took that tribe and showed them 50 versus like 500. And there was a greater great many than the other one. So what I've always thought, and I'm going to tie this in a little bit with a quote that I love from Margaret Atwood, who's a feminist, who says, uh, the Eskimos have 52 words to describe snow. What do we have? One word for love. And as someone who has learned other languages, there are different levels of love that you can describe to other people in different languages. 
But in this English language, there's not love is love. I love people as friends. I love people as girlfriends. I love people romantically. I love all that stuff. But I can't ever define love. But I wanted to know what you thought about that. Do you think that you are limited by the language that you're born with? Sounds like a good question for Jennifer. Oh, wow. I, I don't know if I... What, what about, um, so, so some, some of these ways how we define masculinity, how, how, how po or, or femininity, how, how could, uh, yeah, he crosses his legs when he sits down. Um, so how, uh, how, how can language kind of shape some of this? <laughs> <laughs> how, how, uh, yeah, this is. Okay, uh, so can I? But sure. I, I, do we? Do we? Do we have to tie it to masculinity? Can no, I just we don't. Try to answer yeah, the question you can try to answer asked? his question. So okay. <laughs> I don't know. I really, I don't, I don't know that much about. I'm not a an anthropologist or a warfian or a linguist. But I, I guess my my answer would be not not so much that we are limited by language, but that language reflects something about values and culture. So that we are, oh, it's like the nature-nurture thing. We are both shaped by and we shape language, right? So if language limits us, it, it also reflects us, right? So I don't know. I hope that was a good answer. I'm done. I Drop the mic. I was thinking about... Okay. The book we're writing, and we have a oh, we have a language one. chapter in there, and we talk a little bit about how language can limit, but it uh, can also empower. And so, um, I guess I'm trying to think of an example with respect to gender. So, um, yeah, it doesn't have to be about gender. Well, I'll, I'll give one that has to do with this. So, um, there are there are women's issues that arose in the 70s that once they were given names became more culturally visible. So things like sexual harassment. It wasn't that sexual harassment didn't exist before 1970s, but there was no word for sexual harassment. And once um, the label was given to it, or domestic violence, or uh, spousal rape, these kinds of things can be empowering in the sense that they give visibility to something that might be kind of culturally invisible before that. Or mansplaining. Or mansplaining. <laughs> or, or manspreading. Or manspreading. Yes, uh, yeah. I don't know. Have we answered your question? I I I think I've actually like really thought like my favorite like a uh, linguist everything that I've learned like a uh, I love German linguists I think like Noam Chomsky and like Freud they're amazing but I've also because of that and it was actually a Freudian experiment that developed the the superior war theorem that you can't understand and that language inhibits you rather than enables you so. I've, I, every single philosophy that I've like adopted in my life, I've I've studied German philosophy. I've, they're always awesome, and it always happened to be on accident because it was just like classes I took. But I was like, "Yo, I agree with that." And I look up, and I'm like, "Oh shit, that's German." <laughs> I it's just such a fucking tangent is all like that. That that's like. Uh, I have so much to, like, I'll talk to you after the show about uh, lots of ideas with language for sure, man. Absolutely. Because it's, it's a really yeah. fucking awesome question. I just, like, it, it would take two hours to get into, like, a whole other subject of how, uh, how language was. Uh, sorry, am I being a dick right now? I don't mean to be. 
Uh, I'll buy you a drink afterwards. It, no, it's an awesome question. I just like uh, it, it would it would be like a it, it's like a little bit like a riddle too, um, it, it, like where it would take me forever to dissect a little bit, right? Maybe a little. Um, anyway, no, it's just being a dick. Big no, that's all. It's just a huge question. That's all. Um, all right, we had one more in back, I believe, uh, right there. Okay. So this uh, follows up to one of the points you were talking about earlier, which is our economy nowadays is not as physically demanding for jobs. You know, what we consider the traditional male jobs, working on a farm, working in an industrial plant. These are things that are going away, and our society is moving towards um, what we would consider female jobs or pink-collar jobs. And I was reading recently how there are all these needed jobs that can't get filled, you know, daycare providers and teachers and things that women traditionally, nurses, things that we traditionally think women do. How do we convince men that they can let go of their masculine hang-ups and be able to do these jobs? And then the other point which I was going to ask about, it's kind of a related question, is that some women, um, or I should say men, who work at these traditionally female jobs seem to earn more money than women. Male nurses earn more than female nurses, even though there's vastly more women in nursing. So I, how, do we, how do we get men to do these things, and how do we stop sexism in those things for the few men that are doing them? That's a, that's a good question, and, and um, I don't know that I have a good answer for it, but I think I can tell you about one of the strategies that people are trying with this. So... Um, with nursing, to give you an example, uh, I saw an ad recently or a, um, a recruitment tool recently where uh, it was a poster of a bunch of male nurses and it said, are you man enough to be a nurse? And so the kind of underlying psychology here is that um, the assumption is that if we can kind of make, if we can kind of make the, uh, the job more masculine, more men will want to enter it. I actually don't think that's going to be an effective strategy because I think what that does is uh, kind of ironically reinforce the idea that this is actually a stereotypically feminine job. Um, and so I don't think the strategy is to try to kind of take someone that, take something that's kind of traditionally feminine and try to pretend that it's masculine. Probably the the strategy that would be more effective, and I don't know how you would do this, would be to um, have men get over their hang-ups about kind of going into feminine jobs. Oh. I mean, what if you what if you turned it into like this source of pride? Like you're you're saving someone's life. You're a hero. You know, this is something that that men yeah. rush towards. But those me, are those are EMTs. You know, those Parade. would be those would be like you know emergency. Uh, right. You know, EMTs are men, or at least stereotypically, we think. So, the, so men are drawn to those things, but the nurturing part of that's it. That's exactly, yeah. So the, 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 the stigma with these jobs is that they are associated with caring professions. And I think when we emphasize those values of the jobs, that's the things that scares men away. So maybe, like you said, maybe the, the, the trick is to it's, emphasize kind of the heroic aspects of it. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know. It, it, that, that's a fantastic question. I mean, it, it, makes, me, it makes me think because I, 
Uh, one last little thing, and we're we're going over. But I was uh, I really wanted to ask you guys about was was um, just with, and this might be opening can of worms, and so like stop me when I make you uncomfortable. Um, but but just relating to some of how our modern world and how things are changing so fast. Um, what do you think about some of the so clearly, over the last several years, there there is a lot of men that have gotten like really fed up with like the PC kind of culture, and they're just sick of like not being able to feel like a man. At the same time, this is being combined with factory, like kind of uneducated, like manly jobs. The shit that I used to do, I know these people very well, and I know they're fucking scared and. And and a lot of that is is going away, which is going to lead to more aggression, and um it and it seems like there's been this kind of revolt uh, <laughs> against all of that, like this this uh, you know with after the election of all of a sudden people coming out of the woodwork being like, yes, we finally get to say what we've wanted to say, and all. Uh, uh, do you have any? Uh, and I don't expect to. I, I don't expect to, you to get like all political or anything on it. But do you have any thoughts about uh, when you research what you research? Do you look at what's been happening in the world over the last few years? And I do think that like the, the, a lot of the PC stuff and a lot of the professors that I, I talked to thought a lot of like the kind of PC stuff was was getting really out of hand, and how how sometimes this pendulum swings in other directions and there's no perfect point sometimes people are being too sensitive sometimes they're not being sensitive enough and sometimes there's backlashes against these do you do you have any uh, any thoughts that you and you can just say no if 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 you want to that's fine but if you have anything in your research that I, I, I think you've hit something which is that anytime there's a cultural transition and then the cultural transition is now the loss of kind of traditionally masculine jobs like working class uh, manufacturing, manufacturing jobs, jobs. right? Um, I think you often see backlash. And so I think what this is a response to is men losing that kind of part of kind of traditional masculine identity. And so one way to kind of respond to that kind of feeling of, of masculinity threat is to scapegoat and, and backlash against those who kind of represent threats to that. So it could be women taking jobs, it could be immigrants. Um, and I think a lot of the stuff that's in the political air right now is really a reflection of a lot of that kind of, for a lot of men, particularly white working class men, it's, I'm looking out there and saying, well, who, my father and my grandfather had these great jobs. I don't have those. Who do I blame? Well, you know, it could be whatever group's kind of available and convenient, right? It could be um, immigrants. It could be um, yeah, women. It could be LGBT. LGBT. Um, well, um, uh, guys, I, I had a fantastic time. I hope you guys enjoyed uh, this as well. I hope you had a, uh, a great... I, I thought um, uh, so much of this conversation is so relevant to so many of our lives. Every time I do one of these podcasts, I have, even even if I study and know a, some of this stuff from other things that I've read, I still have my mind blown many times, and I hope that you got to experience this as well, I've been a comic for 13 years. I'm used to having like a stable career performing in front of audiences that are just out to see a comedy show, and it just doesn't really do it for me. Like 
doing stuff like this does. I think this is just kind of a different kind of entertainment experience. And so I hope that you guys enjoyed it. And thank you so much for coming out. How about a big hand for Jennifer Boston and Joe Vandello, everybody. Thank you so much for coming out. I appreciate it. I'm Dave Ross. Hey, and I'm Hampton Young. And we host Suicide Buddies on Starburns Audio. That's right. It's a podcast about suicide, but not to make light of it. We actually talk about suicidal thoughts, depression, kind of with a sense of levity that Dave and I have with each other. He's my best friend. Come on. Yeah, we're buddies. (laughs) Suicide Buddies. That's the title. One of our favorite episodes that we've recorded so far is about this guy, Jan Pataki, who was a Polish aristocrat in the 19th century. Mm-hmm. And he, uh, one of the reasons it's possible that he killed himself <laughs> is that he thought he was a werewolf. Oh. Check out a clip. It also makes me think, like, we were talking about in the Norway uh, black metal episode, how, like, just the culture of your surroundings can affect you. Like, yeah. he's in a castle in Poland. <laughs> He's like, I mean, if you yeah. lived in a castle in Poland and no one knew anything about anything, you might be like, I'm a bat. I'm probably a bat. <laughs> <laughs> That's like literally what happened to Batman. <laughs> he literally is in his mansion. He's like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm, I'm a, a bat. bat. I'm a bat. I'm a, I'm a bat. bat. I'm a, I'm I'm a bat. bat that helps people. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a bat that helps people. I'm a, I'm a rich- I don't know what you want from me. And my, uh, and my, my girlfriend, she's a cat. She's a cat. My she, girlfriend's she, a cat. She steals things. She's a woman who steals things. She's a cat. I'm a bat. I'm a I bat. Help people. She's a cat. We fight a penguin. My, uh, my, 